This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Tragic story yesterday uh, in Toronto. 10 people dead, 15 injured. A man drives a van onto a sidewalk in Toronto. Details emerging in regards to the victims as well and the suspect who was uh, arrested. We're going to play you a couple of clips here. Uh, Some of the eyewitness accounts were just unbelievable. This is one of them. I seen this car go on the sidewalk and he just crumbled down one by one. Every single thing that came in his way, he just drove right on it. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Unbelievable. Uh, The Prime Minister, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, had this to say this morning. At this time, we have no reason to uh, suspect that there is any national security element uh, to this uh, attack. But obviously, the investigations continue. All right, let's bring in David Hyde, security consultant, David Hyde and Associates. He is with us now. David, thanks so much for taking the time today. We certainly do appreciate this. You're welcome, Scott. Uh, so what are your thoughts? We have certainly talked about this uh, a lot of times happening in other parts of the world. How are you processing this a day later? Well, Scott, it was interesting because when, when these incidents happen, my phone lights up and every other form of communication and media wanting comment and things. And and to me, um, it, it was it, it looked deliberate, and, and your mind goes to terrorism right away, of course, like a national-type terrorism incident. But, you know, we always have to, have to just, just wait and be patient to let the facts come out. And now that we've got more information about this, it is a fairly unusual case. I mean, obviously, this is not a national security terrorism case by, in the way it presents. We don't have an ideology that is pronounced yet. We don't have someone who was known to police. We don't have someone who, um, you know, has a, a, a affinity to any particular belief system or, or, or you know, lay, laid out a video or anything else along these lines. This appears to be someone that, that may have some other kind of problems that obviously will come out in the fullness of time. But my initial reaction, Scott, was I think anyone in my shoes would have thought this looks like a deliberate terrorist-type incident and I was waiting for the other, the other shoe to drop. Might there be other plans in place? Might there be another incident unfolding? Might there be a, additional people involved? That's where my head went. And it, just, it turned out that this, this went in a different direction. And we're faced with something that really is making people scratch their heads today, Scott. Uh, a lot of people scratching their heads in what to call this. And, of course, as you mentioned, there's not much we can do until more information becomes available. Uh, that being said, um, do we call this person a domestic terrorist? I mean, this is a, a, a domestic terrorist act. I mean, a, a terrorist act was committed here. You know, as soon as someone starts mounting a sidewalk and, and what it appears to be, from all eyewitness accounts, purposely mowing people over, uh, is this considered terrorism? How do we define this now yeah and it really comes down to the motive scott and that's obviously now a very fulsome investigation is underway and and that includes um a really an unprecedented crime scene if you will with that stretch along young street um and and the police looking back at this individual's history they're going to be combing through all family friends social media um his computer and phone and everything to try to unlock what was in this man's mind and also of course interviewing him i mean unusually here scott it's very often the case in this kind of a scenario and this man tried to have the police shoot him and 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 it was amazing the fact that the composure of the officer that that he didn't end up shooting this guy um but now we have him as a witness that so all in all we may be able to tease out what was in his mind and what this motive was but at the current time scott we have a mass murder Obviously, this was a willful act, but if this man uh, has a mental illness, if it turns out that there's other things at play that we're not aware of, it may not fit a definition of terrorism, because to be terrorism, the, there has to be an ideological or political motive behind it, where you are you know, working towards a particular end, or you're trying to make a certain point, or you're doing this in the, in the name of something. And if this man was just very disturbed, possibly depressed, possibly had a range of issues um, that it might not be an act of terrorism by definition. So by definition, a domestic terrorist has to, it has to belong to some sort of terrorist organization or have some sort of preconceived political agenda. Yeah, they have to have an ideological or political agenda that they're trying to 
further by the act that they took, right? So, you know, in this case, it may be that, that, that this individual does and did have that, and this could be terrorism, but until we know, I mean, normally it comes out fairly quickly. Look at the person's social media. Mm-hmm. Look at the person's history with the police. They're known to be involved in a certain group. Um, it could, let's, we look at the past, things like anti-abortion activists. Um, environmental activists that become violent or that take, you know, actually commit violent acts. And I'm not, I'm not equating this to every other form of terrorism in the world, Scott, but I'm saying very often we can fairly quickly figure out the leaning of the motive and we can say, you know what, yeah, this, this appears to be terrorism. In this case, it's so difficult because apparently this guy doesn't have really a history with the police. Um, he was a college student in the past. People that knew him said he was pretty kept himself pretty unassuming, like there's not really red flags yet that appear to have, you know, been, been, been on the radar. And typically, Scott, when someone does something like this, it is almost always the case that this was a ticking time bomb. And you will more than likely find, and we may find here, that there were abnormal acts that this man had partaken in. There were red flags maybe within his family, within his sphere of friends, if he had a job. All of these things you track back, and sometimes you can find a catalyst for this incident, or sometimes you can find that he actually was doing disturbing or unusual things, but no one added up the dots and assumed he was going to do this. If he's just angry at the world, uh, therefore not a domestic terrorist, just angry at the world and snaps and wants to take it out on people, he's not considered a domestic terrorist then? No, no, that that does not meet the definition of terrorism. It's it's a similar vein to someone who snaps and does a workplace shooting. I mean, these are all heinous, terrible incidents, Scott, and the definition doesn't change the pain um, to to the victims, families, et cetera, et cetera, and what happened. But the definition is what it is. And in this case, until we have a motive that we know there may have been an agenda, we can't define this as terrorism. We were talking about the the takedown. Uh, I, I saw the footage. Uh, you can see the the officer uh, come up beside the van and, of course, uh, uh, demand that uh, the man get down. And uh, at that point, the uh, the alleged killer uh, grabs something as if it's a gun, and he 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 raises his arms as if he's going to shoot. And then what I found fascinating is once it was obvious he wasn't going to shoot, he sort of put his arms down again and then pulled it, pulled them up and made the motion as if he was going to shoot a couple of times. What, what are your thoughts on the takedown? It obviously looked like he was trying to get the cop to shoot him. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question when you look at the movements that he had and the things that he said at the time. Yeah. He said he had a gun. He, said, he told the cop to shoot him. Um, he made movements that were very furtive and, and, and sudden. And, and, you know, he was doing the things that, that, that one would know that would get you shot if you're faced in a high-profile situation with a cop that's got a gun drawn on you. Those are the things that you wouldn't want to do. So he was purposely, by what the video suggests, trying to get the cop to shoot him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, you've got to have hats off to this police officer. These guys are very highly trained and and do a difficult job. But when you're, when the adrenaline's flowing, when you know that someone's just done what this individual's done, they could well be a part of a terrorist group, have, 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 have weaponry and ammunition, and, and gosh knows what to do harm to you. The composure of that police officer was, was really amazing. Um, and for him to be able to discern that it likely wasn't a firearm, or he felt that he didn't need to shoot in that moment, it was really a remarkable bit of policing in a on a on a in a very difficult uh, situation. And obviously, David, he would have made that split to second a split second decision that I'm not going to shoot here because I'm you know I'm not sure. I certainly don't believe he has a gun because easily in many police situations, as soon as that guy put his arms up, he would have been down. Oh yeah, I mean. And many, as soon as you point, many, as soon as you point something at a police officer, look at oh him. Lord, yeah. or even before that. I mean, yeah, the, the, I, you know, you could the police can justify um, in many in many parts of North America. Let's say um, if if the guy just put his hands in his pockets and pulled his hand out, yeah, um, just that movement alone could get somebody shot. I mean, what you have to realize, Scott, is that when when you're in that situation, 
there have been many police officers killed, very tragically, yeah. um, that, that maybe have second-guessed themselves in that moment. At the same time, um, you're also maybe dealing with someone who has a mental illness, mm. and you know that if this person is shot and doesn't have a firearm, that, that it's going to be you know, difficult for you to explain and difficult for you to live with as a police officer. So it is a, it, there's really very little um, more difficult situation, Scott, that I can think of than a, than a cop, especially on their own, um, out, you know, they're exposed and somebody may have a firearm and they have a split second to make a life-altering decision that could alter their life and the life of the other party. The stakes don't get much higher than that, Scott, in my book. A lot of people are, uh, the day after, of course, wondering how this happened, what we can do to prevent it. Uh, this is one of those situations, David. Can you do anything to pre- prevent this sort of thing? And, and really, you can't. I mean, the, 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 the situation here, Scott, I mean, we, we're in, in our country, we, do, we have had a few terrorist-related incidents and plots, things that have almost happened. We've had some things that have, you know, uh, things that have gone forward. There's, there's been a few incidents here. So we have returning fighters from, from the Middle East and other things. So th- there's every reason to believe there is a level of threat in Canada. And CSIS and the RCMP have given a bit of color to that over the years. But, you know, we're not at a heightened threat. We're not at the stage where we need to alter our way of life. That these, the threat level and the incidents are not sufficient where we would need to think about, you know, closing off areas to vehicles, um, you know, like they do in some countries, having metal detectors at the, at the entrances to, to large shopping malls or to, or to railway stations. I mean, that's where this goes next. If we are in a heightened threat situation, it doesn't appear to me that we are. This situation here is one of those that really, if, if somebody turns their mind to doing something like this, there are so many ways that that could be enacted in the world in which we live that there's really, there's really no ways to prevent that. The, 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 the prevention, Scott, goes towards trying to, to identify the indicators of people who are on that path to violence. That's one of the important parts here. Um, and I know uh, that's going to be a big focus of this police investigation. And like I said, it may well be that we find out that this individual had displayed some unusual behavior, had come to the attention of, of people, maybe even authorities, wherever that may have been, and, and, and maybe, maybe had been known to be, have some problems. And the question is, if that is the case, um, what happened and, and why wasn't it brought up before? Or is this just something that came out of left field? It would, it would be unusual if it was a lapse of Scott. Hmm. Does this incident change anything in Toronto, change anything in Canada? Are we different now? Well, I mean, I think it's a stark reminder of the type of incident that can happen. It has happened in other big cities in the world. On the one level, you could go to that kind of place of saying, you know, did Toronto lose its innocence on this day? And I think that's a little bit of a, of a stretch. I, I don't think this is the harbinger, Scott, of something that's now to come. We've turned a corner. Um, if this was a terrorist incident, I think we would be talking, or if it was clearly aligned with, particularly an international global kind of terrorism, like an ISIS or an Al-Qaeda type connection, I think we may be having a different conversation today and over the coming weeks. But given that it appears not to be right now or it's unlikely, you know, I, unfortunately, we see mass shootings, mass murders and really terrible, awful situations. But we see them as outliers. And I don't really see this incident as something that is likely to manifest itself at an increased pace now because of this. I just think this is at the current time with what we know, um, a very tragic but very isolated and unusual case that we need to know more about before we make kind of projections forward, mm. if you will. We're now just finding out news that uh, this man uh, served in the armed forces, so it is a very fluid story. Are you worried, David, that you know uh, other uh, other people who may not necessarily be terrorists are using terrorist-type crimes, activities to, to, uh, as a vehicle for themselves, whether it's this sort of thing or, or, or anything, as you mentioned earlier, within other large groups of people? 
I mean, there's, there's no question that you do see a little bit of that, Scott, like kind of copycat syndrome. And anytime there's an incident like this, the authorities, I mean, you just go to, went to the Leafs game and, and you saw the Toronto yeah. Maple Leafs game and there was a heightened level of policing. That's very common in the immediate aftermath. I think there are, Scott, cases where you've seen non-terrorist type groups adopting tactics that they see, especially with the way that our media is portrayed now through social media it's just such a, you know, news spreads so quickly and the methods and approaches get pushed across the airwaves so, so broadly. But yeah, I, I think that it's possible that people um, can get ideas from that. But again, to me, it's inevitable as we move forward that, you know, uh, the lucky thing for us in this country is uh, this man obviously wasn't able to get his hands on an assault-type weapon very mm, easily. Good point. Because, I mean, you know, obviously this was a tragic horrible situation scott i'm not downplaying any bit of it but you can almost imagine if this guy was wearing a bulletproof vest and was armed with three or four assault weapons uh what we could be talking about today so again Hmm. it was awful and terrible but you know there is something to say for uh, you know how this incident could have been worse and how maybe some of the things we do here Hmm. compared to the state with respect to gun control and other aspects you know, maybe this could have been worse, frankly, um, somewhere else. Good point. David Hyde has been with us, security consultant David Hyde and Associates. As always, David, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. It's a very exciting time for Hamilton. Uh, there's some people in this city that have been talking an awful lot uh, about, uh, for an awful long time, about a sign for Hamilton. Any sign, anything would do. Even when a private company puts one up now, it's exciting because it's all we really have. And there's been a couple of people that have been behind this uh, for a very long time. I'm not sure it's exactly what they envision, but hey, it's still pretty good. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Laura Babcock is with, with us, president of the Power Group and with us now. Laura, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure. Can you believe it? You can actually see a sign. It's actually coming. <laughs> can you, you, can, you can probably smell it from where you are. I've actually stood in it. <laughs> there, there you go. One of the first to already see it. So give us your impression. It is better than I ever thought. Because, as you know, originally I was just driving around the province five years ago going, why is it that every little town on the highway, off the highway, has a sign of some kind, some kind of a brag sign? Sometimes Some towns have them right in their downtown. Toronto's got it at Nathan Phillips Square. Everybody's got these big signs where if you're visiting that place, you can, you know, take a photo, take a selfie in front of it. It's just a sign of, hey, this is who we are. We're here. We're proud. And I couldn't understand why big, great Hamilton, historic Hamilton, the Hammer, this, you know, one of the biggest and oldest cities in the country didn't have any kind of a sign. So at the time, you'll recall, I started the Time for Sign campaign Mm -hmm. on Twitter and people were sending pictures from signs all over the world to make the point, right? Yep. Crowd Hamiltonians were traveling. And then I talked to the city and found out that they had tried to start this process or had started it, spent a bunch of money on it at Amalgamation back in 2000. They, they had been I, working on this for like an, over a decade, had they not? Yeah, they, they worked on it. They spent a bunch of money. They got citizen input. They designed it. They, had, they, they went like 95% of the way and then stopped. And no one kind of knew why. Uh, and so I was asked to go in front of council to bring it up. And at the time, Scott, Pan Am games were coming, remember? Yep. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me to make sense to put the sign where we'd get the most exposure to it. And at that time, it was the 403 into the city because the, sure. all the buses from Toronto, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then it got in front of council. It became an election year political football. And the craziest part about it was that everybody on council was like, yeah, yeah, we need the sign. Sounds great. Good idea. And then Councillor Clark at the time brought up, well, if we're going to do one, why not do like five economies of scale? And so they had this big discussion and then uh, they voted. And I remember listening to them and some of them thought they'd voted for the signs. Some of them were like, no, no, we voted on an amendment for going back to staff. In other words, <laughs> it was just, I almost drove off the highway. I remember I was near Vaughn and I'm like, they don't even know how they voted. right? <laughs> and some of the councillors the second time were there the first time, were they not? Well, yeah. No, no, for sure. And so because it was an election year and the price of that kind of a highway sign, you know, one that's right there on the highway, you have to have all kinds of MTO involvement. It's a lot more than people think, right? And so the price tag was a big price tag, not out of line with every other town that's got one, but it sounded big at the time. 
And so it was confusing. And I think that everybody's like, yeah, yeah, we should have a sign. But it got, you know, the devil's in the details. So what happened was so funny is after that vote kind of didn't go through or got confused, uh, then I had business leaders coming up to me going, so how's the sign? When, when are we going to get it? <laughs> mm. I said, well, that's a great question. So when the new council came in, uh, I asked Mayor Fred about it, and he liked the idea of the sign and loved what other cities around the world were doing. And so he did some research in it. And PJ Mercanti, who was one of the business leaders who said, oh, I, I think the sign's necessary. It's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mayor reached out to PJ, and PJ was able to really spearhead fundraising so that the sign is privately paid for by generous Hamiltonians, and it is being built, and it's going to be at the gateway to downtown, not the gateway on the 403 for the Pan Am buses coming in, but I think in some ways an even more important gateway, which is it will light up our downtown, it will fill up that kind of cement dead zone in front of City Hall, right. uh, and it is gorgeous, Scott. I mean, even people who don't think they want to sign, when they see this done by a local artist, they're blown away by its beauty. It's really cool. You know, again, and as you mentioned, you see, and we were talking before about something totally different, like a Welcome to Hamilton sign, which we'll get to in a minute. These are a, a, a sort of a different bear altogether, and you know, I'm, I remember very vividly flying to Amsterdam a few years ago, and as soon as we got out of the airport, that there it was, their sign. I think there says, I am Amsterdam. Um, and, and we're all standing in front of it taking pictures. I, I remember us all doing, uh, you know, posing right. for pictures in front of this thing. It's an absolutely great idea. What's the advantage to something like this as opposed to uh, one of the ones out on the highway that says, Welcome to Hamilton? Well, you know what? They're both along the same, uh, from, from my point of view, and I, I'm not the one who did this ultimately. Of course, Mayor Fred spearheaded this iteration of it. Uh, but I've been a part of this, and I, this iteration, I'm happy to help because I think it's wonderful. But the whole point, from my point of view, is why aren't we bragging about our city? You know, Brampton's got one on the highway and yeah. one down in their main area, right? It doesn't matter where it was. I just couldn't understand why we, we didn't have something more than like a population marker, right? It just didn't seem like we were leveraging a no-brainer marketing idea. Yeah. And so had it been on the highway, yes, it would have had a lot of drive-by traffic going, hey, that's a nice word in Hamilton. That's a big sign, says something strong or big about the city. The fact that people, Hamiltonians, I like this version even better because now you can stand in it. I sure. mean, I stood in the L, and mm-hmm. you can experience it. Uh, the Toronto sign, which you can't even stand in, but is in Nathan Phelps Square, I, I think gets you know millions of pictures on social media or whatever because people see it. And just like you did in Amsterdam, they want to take a photo with it. So it's, it's still a sign about pride. It's still at a gateway to when you drive into our downtown. That's when you sort of know your downtown, when you hit that city hall forecourt area. And so to me, it's a wonderful gateway. It's different, better than I thought. I think mm. it'll get more use than a highway sign. might not get as many drive-by impressions, but I think it will ultimately get more engagement around it. So it's a wonderful investment for all of the generous sponsors. And when this first started, there was talk of this thing actually being mobile. Is that the case, or is it pretty much there all the time? Well, it's, you know what? It, I think technically it can be. It's built right. on a base, but mm-hmm. it's huge. Yeah. I mean, I think it's way bigger, Scott, than any of us envisioned. It's way more beautiful. It's like a piece of, like, I never thought I'd be standing in the Hamilton. So I'm, I'm looking at a photo with it. Like, I'm looking at the picture of the thing right now, and you stood inside the L or the I. Yeah. 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 I stood inside the L wearing high heels, probably yeah. at six feet, and there was two feet above me. Wow. Uh, it's huge. It's massive, and the colors that it can do because. It is lit from the inside end on the ed- on the sort of the, the surface of it. It can do any color combination. It can move up and down like disco lights. It can light up the Vestitalia. It can light up for pride. It can do kind of anything that the city wants, Any anything that we want to celebrate, anything we want to theme to. So it's way more, and this is often how collaborations go, right, Scott? You think you need something, and then people get together and they come up with something even better. So I'm pretty wow. happy about it. Yeah, good point, good point. So does this mean the, the highway sign is off the docket now? We don't need that, or do we still push ahead for that? You know, that's a really good question. I think that when people start to, I mean, part of the reason we're on the highway sign, right, is people were wondering, you know, what do we say? What's a catchy tagline? I even did Toronto shows about that. And I think, you know, I always said just the word Hamilton, I think, speaks enough. It's, It's a known brand. It has its own strength and its own meaning. It's not like it's something new. And so I think when people fall in love with just the word Hamilton and realize just all that it means and all that it brings to them in terms of civic pride, I think maybe it'll make it even easier for nice Hamilton signs to be on those other gateways because the word Hamilton is enough. You know, we don't need to paralysis by analysis coming up with what's our tagline for the next five years. 
Hamilton means something. And uh, the response to this sign uh, has been crazy. Uh, the little, the images of it, just even in its construction that have gone out, mm. uh, people are super excited. So uh, I'm really thrilled. And you bring up a valid point. It shows you how much this whole discussion has changed. Because I remember one of the sticking points way back when was, well, what's the slogan going to be? What's the tagline going to be? And is it a city of this? Does it mention steel? Does it stay away from steel? I mean, right. that was a big stumbling point right there. The idea now of just the name, that's perfect. We don't need any characterization. We don't let people, you know, it's an individual thing now. And that's the funny thing, though, Scott, is originally the first version that the city paid all that that time and energy on, what, 17, 18 years ago, uh, was just the word Hamilton in big, strong letters. There you go. And then when it came out five years ago, everyone wanted to kind of play with, well, we're different, we're this, we're that. And sometimes those discussions have value, but I've always felt, and I said to council when I presented, just the word Hamilton, it's, good enough, it's big enough. You know, Hamilton has a legend associated with it that I knew before I got here. And so I think when people see the word and realize just how much they love it, this sign, it might, it might just ease the way, okay, let's get some different. Obviously, it's nothing going to be this grand and this interactive uh, on any kind of highways. But, uh, you know, I think it might just ease that discussion. We don't have to be too cute by half. Hamilton stands for something beautiful on its own. And people will feel that when they get in the sign. I'm telling you, it's something else. So, I thought I would expect it, but it blew my mind. So as the Hamilton City Councilors are standing there inside and they're looking out and you can see the glow on their faces from the sign, whatever color it happens to be that night, do you think they're sitting there saying, yeah, it's a great sign? Uh, we had nothing to do with it, really. It was private people that got this done. I mean, are, are they saying anything that this, you know, it had to, it, it took however long to do that initial study? It took someone like you to get in there and the time for sign to get it all moving again. And really, in the end, they didn't do much. I mean, in the end, it was private contribution, people like PJ that got behind this and and, and made it happen. So where does that leave them in all of this? You know, and I look at it like the, the city, they are representatives of the population, but they're not the city. The city is all of us, right? And mm. when you look at how some neighborhoods have come up and grown, it's been because of local initiatives, local activists, local business owners. So to me, I don't care. You know, they, yeah. they obviously heard about it. They endorsed it. The mayor brought it to council to let them know. Uh, I, I look at us as one big collective, you know, and some things need a stamp of approval or they need city funding and other things just need the work of the people of the city to do. And so to me, this is, you know, everybody can own this. Everyone can feel good about it. Nobody tried to stop it. You know, everybody, uh, once they saw it, realized it was locally designed and locally built and just something I hope they can feel proud of when they look out that window because they'll see it all the time. I mean, you'll yeah. see it from council chambers. It is big yeah. and bright. And imagine it during the mist and the snow. It'll cheer us all up. Why don't you think this got more attention? Why don't you think it was there, there was... Uh, uh, I guess people upset about this because it wasn't public money. Really, nobody had much to say about it, did they? Well, I think it helps when uh, when citizens are going to be generous. Like it yeah. kind of eases that because when it's public funds, there's always a valid discussion about where are they best used, right? Yeah. And there's always lots of needs, and there's lots of other needs that I also agree with, right? Um, but any kind of infrastructure, any kind of marketing budget that the city does, there's there's a cost to that. So the cost of the sign wasn't exorbitant. It was in line with what other cities have done. Uh, but in Hamilton, you know, we have a robust local discussion about all of our pressing priorities. So probably the sign would have happened, Scott, maybe it would have taken another few years. Uh, all I know is that sometimes citizens can stand up and say, hey, we're all part of this together. It's our city. Mm. Uh, the mayor took the leadership on this and councillors certainly didn't get in his way. And, and citizens like PJ stepped up and others, right? So uh, in, you saw Hamilton spend 50, 60 years on a highway. You know? <laughs> we have the capacity in this town to talk yeah. things to death. So, you know what, I think people can just see it, love it, know it's local, it's creative, it's, it's art, uh, it's marketing, it's art, it's experience, and it, and it will brighten up downtown, I can't even tell you. When you see that thing driving by, you're yeah, going to wonder nice. how we ever lived without it. You know what would be really cool is once the LRT is built, we get like a flatbed LRT, we put it on the back car and just tow it up and down the strip. <laughs> <laughs> what do we do? Or better yet, we can put a letter on every car. Right. You know what? This sign is so big and bright, you might be able to see it from the LRT room. Yeah, really. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's something that I think says to me, yes, Hamilton, we can have good, flashy, beautiful things. We have lots of creativity and lots of energy. And sometimes 
you know, we have to go inside and outside of the of the standard political process, but it doesn't mean that we can't all be proud of it. And, you know, definitely the highway signs, I don't necessarily see business people saying, hey, I want to pay for the city's highway signs, because that really yeah. is an infrastructure kind of thing. Um, but I think in this case, maybe it will inspire uh, the, the councillors to say, hey, yeah, let's get signs on the other parts, other entrances, other gateways to our town, because it looks so good and it makes you feel good. You'll you, feel good. And you know what? You could do, like, just a much smaller version of this. Of course. You know, something that's Absolutely. maybe only, like, two meters from one end to the other. Very small, like, foot-high letters, and, and, and have, like, uh, replicas of that, you know, at either end of the city. It would look pretty cool, too. Yeah, I think so. I think people are going to love this thing, and, and that idea that the hard work's already been done, and the design and the conceptualized and the and the and understanding that the word itself is enough, uh, and smaller replicas of this, or just even things that that kind of make you think of this big sign, that would be cool too. It, it has always been about the no-brainer of marketing a very powerful brand, which is our city. And what's cool about this sign and where it's located is that we're not just now marketing to people coming into the city or driving past the city. Yeah. People in Hamilton can have fun with it. I know when I go downtown, uh, I'm going to be visiting the Hamilton sign with my friends all the time because it's mm. just going to make everyone have a good time. Yeah, everybody will want that picture. Uh, what about its durability? Uh, what about vandalism? Uh, graffiti, a big issue we were talking about earlier on uh, in in the week. Uh, how is the sign built for that sort of thing? Are you worried it's going to get wrecked or, you know, we'll lose well, you a know, letter? That, that was my question when I saw it last Monday. I got the sneak peek tour and it's so, so beautiful. And, and I thought, oh, you know, this is too nice. Um, so there, Yeah, we're going to have to rope it off? Yeah, well, actually the surface of it apparently is very hard to tag or to, to stick to. Like they, they thought of some of these things, right? So it is a very slick surface. But also, the um, it's right in front of City Hall, and there's tons of surveillance cameras, and City Hall is a pretty secure location. So um, I think that just by virtue of its location, uh, it's in a pretty safe spot. Interesting you should say that, because just as we were talking about it, I got a, a note from a listener saying, okay, Scott, let's start the pool. How long will it take until the little you-know-what start to spray paint it? But you're not concerned about that. Well, even if they are, um, those you know what. Uh, will probably be picked up by some sort of city hall security, so I don't think it's a great plan. <laughs> yeah, that, I guess there'll be all kinds of cameras on this thing once exactly. it's set up, that's for sure. I Just remind, remember the uh, Stony Creek sign, and someone popped off the S there a while back. Do you remember that? Yeah, and that happens to signs, right? Yeah. Like, there's vandalism to signs, but again, I think, and this is credit to uh, Fred, I forget why he thought of the forecourt of city hall, but I, I think it's a genius idea because that forecourt I always felt was underused and it kind of made you feel like you were driving into like an imp- like a missing tooth death yeah. with other big empty cold space. Uh, and so when I think of rallies and things, I've been there to, you know, having something just to, to make that area work better. It makes total sense. And there's the benefit of the fact that, you know, City Hall has surveillance. You know, it's yeah. our city hall. Yeah. So uh, I think it's I think it's a, it's a double win in terms of that. But I appreciate that people are already feeling protective of Scott. It tells you they like the thing. <laughs> That's right. That, you know, we never even thought about that. Forget the security cameras. All of a sudden, you know, somebody's doing, someone tries to tag the sign. Someone comes out of the bushes and takes them to the ground. Don't be right, digging right. with our sign, man. <laughs> I, I could you know see that. I, I don't think people are going to want to leave it. Like, once <laughs> you figure right. out that one of the letters in your name is in the sign, you're going to want to own it. <laughs> yeah, that's I'm right. I'm already fighting with Larry Deani about who owns the L. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Good point. Uh, do we know what the final price tag is and or, or how many businesses contributed to this? Do they get anything for this? Do they get a, Do they get a name on the side of the sign or anything? Well, I can tell you this. Because I'm not part of that part of it, uh, PJ really has been just doing a phenomenal job. I mean, I met some of the sponsors the other night, and I know that we've all been invited, all of us who are part of this, to be there on Friday night. So I'm sure they're going to announce them and recognize them at the ceremony. It's officially being lit up. Uh, The ceremony starts at 8.30, and they're going to light it, I think, close to dusk. And I encourage everybody out there. I mean, this is your sign. This is your city. I mean, who cares how we got it? We got it. It's Mm. there. um, And we should all celebrate it. So I'm looking forward to it being kind of like a spontaneous party downtown on Friday night. People should come out and be there for it. Kind of like the lighting of the Christmas tree, only, I think, better and bigger and will be there for a lot longer. Absolutely. What a great idea. Laura Babcox with us, President Power Group. The Hamilton sign set to be lit uh, this coming Friday ceremony on Friday evening to uh, flip the switch, as they say. Uh, I almost Laura- never thought I'd hear you say that, Scott. It's yeah. music to my ears. I know. Really. I mean, we've been talking about it. Like, I've been here for 13 years we've been talking about it. <laughs> 
Uh, and congratulations to you, Laura, too. You were a big part of this uh, with the old uh, Time for Sign campaign and, and getting this discussion started. Who would have ever thought it, it would end up like this? But as you said, uh, thumbs up all around. I think it's... Uh, Let's take the win. Let's take the win. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Laura Babcock, President Power Group. Thank you, Laura. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Uh, good to see Hamilton finally gets its sign, and it is a doozy. Uh, very modern, and of course, uh, what you see in lots of great cities uh, all around the world. Uh, and of course, Hamilton now up there. I, I think this is going to be a great addition to the city. And uh, as Laura said, I think Friday night, there's going to be a lot of flashes going off as uh, people take uh, pictures of themselves uh, on the new sign. Seems pretty bizarre that we're making such a big stink over a dang sign. That's because it's taken a hundred years. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. There's a growing concern among people who rely on service dogs in regard to those that dress their own pets to look like service dogs. Should we be surprised? I mean, is it any different than someone who borrows the uh, uh, or steals or whatever, uses uh, uh, a parking spot for someone in a wheelchair? That doesn't really need it or didn't really get the, or got the pass fraudulently. It's the same sort of thing, except one step further. Uh, it's hard to believe that this happens. And uh, how, how do you detect it? How do you get those bibs for your dog? Uh, let's bring in Danielle Forbes, Executive Director at National Service Dogs of Canada and with us now. Danielle, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, no problem. Thank you for the opportunity. Tell everybody what National Service Dogs of Canada is. Well, for National Service Dogs, um, kind of our claim to fame is we're the first program in the world to provide service dogs to children with autism and create a service dog model around that. And we are currently the only Assistance Dogs International accredited service dog provider in Canada servicing veterans and first responders with post-traumatic stress disorder. Wow. So tell us a little bit yeah. about these animals. How, what is the process like? How do you train these? How, how, do you, how do you pick a dog? Well, for us, actually, it's a multi-year process. Uh, we have our own breeding program, and we've been breeding dogs for 22 years. And all our dogs are, are what we call bred for purpose. So we've been um, selecting our breeding stock and breeding them um, with, with the aim of getting them out the door um, as an autism or um, PTSD assistance or service dog. Um, and once they're born, it takes two years for us to properly assess, train, and uh, match them with a client. And then after that happens, there's a, uh, eight years of follow-up with the dog and the client to ensure that um, the dog is continuing to meet the needs of the client. Um, that the training is maintained. Uh, we actually retain ownership of all of our dogs. We don't sell them. That was my next um, question. Who actually owns the yeah. dog? How does this work? We do. We do. Think of it like a lease agreement, right? So the organization uh, actually owns the dog and the clients utilize them and, and cover the cost of their ongoing maintenance. But um, it very much is for us, each dog is a, a partnership arrangement with our clients. And we take that very seriously because we want to ensure that the dogs are supported and that our clients are supported throughout the process and their needs are being met. Because for children with autism especially, right, the five-year-old you give the dog to um, right out of the gate is a different kid five years later hmm. um, as they mature and evolve, right? And that we have to ensure that the dogs are evolving appropriately with them. So. Now, is it often that you will take a dog that has been trained and, and have it with different people as opposed to the same person all the time for its, for its, um, du for its duration? No. I mean, our goal is to match one dog with one client right. and have them utilize that dog until the dog retires, usually around age 10. Um, what, happens, what, what, what happens when they do retire? Most of the families keep them, and they become yeah. pet dogs and um, best buddies to other members of the family, children, and stuff like that. Very few of our dogs come back in retirement. They're well-loved where they are, so hmm. um, most of our families tend to keep them. And if they get a second dog, they just have two dogs at home. <laughs> you talked about the breeding program that you have, which obviously mm -hmm. must, uh, as well, shorten this lengthy training period, too. How are these dogs different than a typical dog? 
Well, because they're bred for purpose, we have we have decades of, of history on the dogs that we're breeding, and we know what they've produced in terms of working service dogs. And so, would they you know, all the be very? So, for example, would they all be extremely calm? Would they all have the same sort of temperament? <clears throat> Yeah, our our goal within our program, because we're servicing children with autism and veterans with post-traumatic stress, we're looking for dogs that are very well-grounded. They tend to have a very relaxed attitude, but um, have the attention and focus on their handler that they need to respond to um, anxiety cues and things like that, right? So the dogs have to be very tuned in with their people. We look for... Um, we don't look for dogs with high drive. So, you know, some yeah. Labrador retrievers are very good at retrieving exercises and um, they have a high drive, um, yeah. more of a, a high prey drive. And the dogs that we've been breeding for 22 years, we've kind of tried to breed that out of them. We want them focused very much on their handlers and not, you know, looking for squirrels and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, you don't need that. Uh, what? How yeah. do they react if they see that their partner is in distress in some way. How do these dogs react? What do they do? How does how do they comfort them? Well, we um it's it's for it's it's, it's not as much comfort as it is um grounding them in reality. Um for both our kids with autism and our veterans, um albeit for different reasons, when they become overwhelmed, especially in public places, they tend to dissociate and check out, right? Um, and they lose track of where they are. And the dogs um, ground them and keep them in reality and allow them to focus on the dog and something positive instead of allowing whatever is stressing them in their environment to take over and cause them to shut down. In, um, in, the, um, in the case of, of the veterans, um, we, we teach the dogs to nudge, Mm. Um, the dogs are specifically trained to their anxiety cues to nudge them and re-engage them. And for some of our kids with autism, um, it's kind of sometimes hard for, for us who've never experienced to understand, but they can sometimes feel as if they're not physically grounded, like they don't have a concept uh, in space and time of where their body is. Mm. And some of our kids have explained it feels like floating. Like they feel literally untethered and they feel like they're drifting right. physically. So the dogs being tethered to them physically grounds them and gives them a point of reference in space and time for where their body is and helps make them feel like they're not just going to disappear into the ether, right? How many service dogs would be in service across the country? Any idea? Um, well, I don't have stats on, I mean, we're part of, um, we're accredited by Assistance Dogs International, and there's nine other service dog providers across Canada that are accredited um, as well, and we collect stats and share stats together, and there's probably, I believe, in the order of magnitude, about 5,000 teams mm. within our organizations across Canada. Um, I'm not I'm not up to speed on how many owner-trained dogs would be out there or dogs from programs that don't come from within the accredited and I'm guessing there's a, programs. I'm guessing there's a high demand. You have to turn them out as fast as you can, no? Um, the demand is, is actually overwhelming for all of us. Yeah. We all are, are working on uh, two and a half to three year plus wait times. Um, I don't believe there's any accredited programs in Canada even accepting new applicants to autism programs because we can't even come close to keeping up with the demand. Mm. Why does it take um, two years to train the dogs for this? Well, we're all breeding our own dogs, and it takes two years for the dogs to fully mature. We're using labs. So that's right from a puppy, right from a puppy to two years old, basically. That's right. So automatically built into that, it takes two years just to to get the dogs fully mature and in a position to go out and reliably work for their handler. So, how did you become aware that there were people that were that have service dogs that really don't have service dogs? So, explain this. Well, it's been a slow progression, right? If somebody's been in the industry for 24 years, in the early days pre-internet, this wasn't an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you, on occasion, see the odd person with a homemade jacket on their dog, but it, it was very, very infrequent. But with the internet and the ability to purchase stuff online um, for varying degrees, anywhere from $40 to $240, people can get very officious-looking um, jackets and ID cards and all kinds of stuff, and it's it leaves um, it ripe for people to take advantage of that. 
And um, so it's become it's 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 becoming more and more of a problem. Um, where we we see it most is um, especially here in Ontario because. There's um, no specific service dog act that addresses some of the challenges of having unregulated dogs in public. So we get calls weekly from business owners and transportation agencies and things like that who have come up against um, inappropriately behaved dogs in service dog jackets, unsure of what their legal rights are in terms of keeping their customers and their staff safe. Are they allowed to... Um, are they allowed to deny access legally, not legally? They really don't know because it's not very clearly spelled out here in Ontario. So obviously um, you can get whatever you need online to make your, you can get the service dog kit, I guess, so to make your dog look like yeah. this. That being said, what do people, why do they do this? What do they use it for? What's the purpose? What are they getting out of it here? Well, I I can't speak for them, but I I mean, some people I've I've met who are flat out. Oh, I just want to take my pet dog everywhere. I love them and I want to take them everywhere. And there's there's because there's no oversight or regulation involved. Um, it opens up the door for that to happen. Um, and in the province of Ontario, there's no there's no standards for the dogs and the handlers either. So here in the in the province, uh, you need a doctor's note under the um, AODA. Um, verifying that you need a dog to mitigate your disability. But beyond that, there's no guidelines or standards on how that dog should behave, how it should be handled in public so that it's safe and appropriate and non-obtrusive to everybody else. Um, it's There's really nothing. If you reach out to the province of British Columbia and Alberta, they have specific service dogs acts that lay out expectations on service dog handlers and programs and how the dog should be behaved in public, and they issue government access cards, hmm. almost like a driver's license, yeah. right, that verifies that this dog has been qualified by the government as a legitimate service dog that's safe to be in public. Is that um, what's needed in Ontario? In my opinion, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It would, it would reduce the number of phone calls we receive every month from, as I said, business owners who don't know how to deal with poorly behaved dogs that... Yeah may or may not be legitimate service dogs. What about on um, airliners? Are people trying to get these things on airlines? Sure. Yeah. Sure. We had a situation where one of our team members was flying. Um, I won't name the airline, but um, they'd been at a dog show, <laughs> mm. and there were people on the flight that had purchased jackets online for their show dogs so they wouldn't have to, oh, and were the passing department. them off as service dogs so they wouldn't have to put them under the plane. Now, uh, is there a way to tell a service dog from these other imposters? Um, well, it, you know, if you're in a food court at a mall and, and you've got, you know, a chihuahua sitting on the tabletop um, <laughs> with somebody in a service dog jacket, it's probably not legitimate because that is behavior completely unbecoming of a service dog. Right. Um, yeah, no, it can be very difficult, very difficult um, to identify because... Um, all of the programs have different colored jackets. Our branding is all different. Um, so unless somebody has engaged in the industry and made themselves knowledgeable, the general public doesn't know, which is why a government-issued card would level that playing field. Regardless of what the jacket looks like or what people say, they would have something right. that is official and qualified that they can they can point to and say, okay, that's that's legit. Well, they do it for parking passes, so why wouldn't they do it for, yeah. for service dogs? Uh, they do it for driver's license and all yeah. kinds of things. Um, it's a process. Like I said, um, BC and Alberta have led the charge in Canada on that front um, with service dog legislation. Nova Scotia is following in their footsteps. And um, I'm hoping Ontario is not going to be the last one at the table on that front. Um, but, um, yeah, we'll see. Uh, when did you first, when were you first made aware of this? When did this start happening? Well, like I said, it's been a slow burn, right? As the internet has, uh, become more prevalent and people have seen the opportunity to take advantage of some of this. I mean, the legislation we have here in Ontario is the same as the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? So most of the stuff is coming out of the U.S. Because and, the, the rules and regulations are the same and there's gaps. 
how uh, how big how big a concern is this for your industry and government in general? Is this something that they're going to have to do? Well, I mean, I can't speak for the government. Um, the fact that they're they're not really looking at it now is something that's a priority. Tells me that you know it's not right now for them. But in terms of our clients, the impact is you know if 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 there's if there's dogs out in the public venues wearing service dog jackets, like I said, legitimate or not, and they're not behaving, and somebody has a bad experience, anybody coming up is going to be less inclined to open open their doors willingly right. to individuals coming through with dogs. So you get more questions, more denials of access, and it makes it more difficult for our handlers um, because there's they now have to not only they have to educate yeah. where they didn't have to before right it be, they and they have to explain well here's here's my paperwork this is legitimate but um you know if you've had a bad experience the next dog walking through the door is is going to fall under question right, right. Uh, and in, in, um that's what we're seeing in a public place will a service dog act differently than a typical dog you would notice it would i notice it in some cases, it'll be very obvious. I mean, I was I was in the Eaton Center in Toronto um, doing a public access test, actually, on one of our teams and when another dog on the end of a rope jumped our dog, and the gentleman just had a doctor's note in his pocket saying he needed the dog to mitigate his disability, but the dog had no training, was on a 10-foot, literally, rope, and was interfering with everybody it passed at, at the Eaton Center. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a legitimate... According to the AODA, that's a legitimate dog in the province of Ontario. That behavior isn't, as I said, wouldn't be considered behavior becoming of a service dog by our definition of a service dog. What about people that are doing the same job that you're doing but aren't as qualified and are trying to put these things out the door as being service dogs and I'm sure getting more money for it and perhaps don't have the training that's needed? Is there some sort of standard that's needed here? Yes, I was just going to say exactly that. That's where a standard would help, right? And if the province could set that standard and um, put a regulatory piece in place and the issuance of cards um, saying that people have met that standard, in in both Alberta and BC, if the dogs come from accredited programs like National Service Dogs, the teams are automatically qualified and can get their public access card. But if you've trained your own dog, and let me be clear, I've run into a lot of people who've trained their own service dog and done a beautiful job. The dogs are well-behaved, properly uh, socialized, and they're really good dogs and they deserve to be working in the field. Um, just because they didn't come from a program like ours doesn't mean they're not they're not uh, legit. Um, but individuals going through it in that fashion can take um, a government-issued accessibility test with a government assessor and qualify that way so that they they have it's like a driver's test you yeah. know they've passed their test it's been qualified and then they get their government issued access card and that's a fair and equitable way of doing it because it creates accountability within the system what we don't have here in Ontario right now is accountability hmm. if all you need is a doctor's note that says you need a dog to mitigate your disability there's no accountability built into that. And what about employers and you know, companies, businesses that, that have this as part of policy? If, if there's a standard, it would be a lot easier for them to implement as well. Yep. Exactly. All right. Danielle exactly. Forbes has been with us, Executive Director of National Service Dogs of Canada. Danielle, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. That's awesome. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.